Welcome to the Creative Liberty Podcast. I'm your host, Major Chisholm, and in the studio with me today is a dear friend, Chris Allen. Welcome. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, um, it's been a while since we've actually talked, about three years, sort of on the phone, but before that, well, for our for my studio audience, all 15 of you. I, I think we... We've had a few little quick conversations, but yeah, we haven't actually seen each other in years. Yeah. Um, we went to college together, didn't we? Yeah. You lived above me, I think. Yeah. Or maybe above the people next to me. I don't know, but it was nearby. Yep. Uh, 1993, we first met. <laughs> and you were 17 years old, according to your bio. No. No. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> I was uh, 19 by then. Okay. Um and we were roommates for a short time. So one that's summer, right. One summer? Twice. Two summers. Two summers. That's right. Yeah. Two summers. Oh four and twenty ten. Oh yeah. That's right. Okay. Cool. Well, why do what what do, why why you? Why you? You're you're an author. Author I am. Chris I am. Allen. And so we can go ahead and clear up the confusion with the author Israel Allen versus Chris Allen. Let's do it. Um, so yeah, no, I, my name is Chris Allen, and that's what I expect people to call me. I don't, I don't pretend that I'm, you know, somebody other than I am. But <laughs> there are a bunch of authors named Chris Allen, ah, gotcha. and so for branding purposes, um, Israel Allen um, came up with that. Uh, gosh, in the late '90s, I liked the way it looked on the page, and so, and of course. Uh, you need something that looks decent on a book. And so anyhow, I uh, chose Israel Allen. And so much of my stuff comes with that label on it. Uh, not everything, though. Some of the things that I've put out will have my real name on it. Um, and then I also use another pen name, Terry Pryor. So uh, anyway, it's all branding stuff so that you kind of know what you're getting and that it doesn't get mixed up with all the other Chris Allen's out there. Gotcha. Um, so Israel, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you've told me. I've, I was trying to think what your middle name was, but I don't know that it's not Israel, is it? No, no. Um, Israel came from, when I was working on my first novel, I was listening to The Waiting. I don't know if you know the band The Waiting at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but one of their songs opens up with this line, call me Israel. And I was listening to that album a lot. And I liked that song. I liked the entry. And, and actually, it was, it was weird. It's one of a handful of albums that I was able to write to really well when mm -hmm. I was stuck put that on and be able to be more productive. And so anyway, I kind of wanted to honor that. And then, you know, um, I don't write what I would call Christian fiction, but I am a Christian and influences a lot of my stuff. And so I feel like my characters are often wrestling with faith in some way. And of course, Israel means he wrestles with God. And yeah. so uh, and I thought, well, that, that fits. It, it looks nice on the page. It fits sort of thematically what I'm trying to do as a writer. Uh, so Israel Allen made sense. And at that time, there were no other Israel Allens that were famous in any way. Um, now there's a guy who, uh, I guess it was on Britain's Got Talent. There's a singer, a British singer named Israel Allen as okay. well. But other than that, if you go, if you go Googling for Israel Allen, you're going to get one of us. Nice. Um, and that, that's <laughs> it. Whereas if you use, if I use my real name, it's millions of hits and all kinds of crazy things. It's hard to find. Right. So I went with Israel. Nice. Okay. That, that. That clears that up. Um, 
Israel Allen. Chris Allen. So, uh, backstory. Tell me, tell me your love of like reading and writing and, and how you got into it and um, kind of bring us kind of to today. Wow. Uh, I don't think we have that kind of time, but I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, no, I, uh, I don't remember learning to read. Uh, my parents taught me to read long before school. Um, I, I remember one of my earliest memories of language is being in kindergarten on the first day and um, not in an arrogant way at all, but just confusion as the teacher started going over the basically alphabet and beginning the process of teaching students to read and looking around and going, wait, you, you, you guys don't know this. Like, I just, yeah, you know, it, I learned early enough that to me it was like, you know, walking and talking. It was just one of those things everybody could do. And so anyway, I, I always loved reading uh, as a child and, and started writing very early. Uh, you know, I, again, I don't, I don't really remember beginning to write, I remember always writing. Uh, so even as a very small child, writing poems and little stories and songs and things like that. And so it was just always part of who I was. Started to get more serious about it in high school, uh, really more with poetry than, than fiction at that time. Um, I, I wrote a ton of poetry when I was in high school and in college, most of which is just hideously awful. Um, I've, I've seen some of it in recent years, yeah. and it is so bad. I used to go and perform poetry at this coffee shop in, in Asheville in the 90s when I was in college. I would, I would work here in the summers. Uh, I live in Asheville now. Uh, and I, I would go and do stuff. And I always got really good responses, and so I thought, oh, my, my stuff must be good. And then I would send it to you know magazines and stuff and never could get anything published. And so and what I figured out years later was that I was just really good at public performance. You know, I, I've been <laughs> on stage my whole life. And so, you know, I could, I could get up and do this thing and people enjoyed it, but the work was crap, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I had no idea that that was the case. Um, and so anyway, I, I started writing stories when I was in college. Uh, I had to, had to write a short story for a, uh, for a creative writing class. And then, um, that particular story was, was about this sort of conflict. Um, this, this guy had asked a girl out and then she uh, didn't show up. And so anyway, I don't remember all the details, but, but the, the point is um, it, it occurred to me after I wrote the story, like, well, what, what if her side of the story is completely different from what he thinks it is? And mm -hmm. so then I wrote this other story that was about why she didn't show up and right. had almost nothing to do with him, but uh -huh. was like her perspective. And then that grew into what became my, my first novel, um, just sort of playing with perspective. Um, that, that story is, uh, what do we call that now? Asheville Stories 95-96 is now the name of that thing. That okay. Out there. <laughs> it. They want it. Um, that's under Terry Pryor. But um, in any event, wrote that, that piece, um, and that kind of got me into the bug of, uh, okay, I want to write novels now. I, you know, I had written poems and short stories up to that point, but that made me want to be a novelist working on that project, although that thing isn't really a novel. It's what we call a novel and a story. It's a bunch of short stories that sort right. of add up over time. Um, but in any event, that, that kind of got me going. But it took a long time from then to actually writing another novel. Uh, gosh, eight years, I guess, before I finally wrote another one. Um, I, I, I used to think I was a writer. Um, and wasn't really, you know, um, which is <laughs> kind of a hard thing to explain to people. I think, um, 
I've come to understand that if if you write, then you're a writer. But if you think about writing, you're you're something else. I don't know what you are, but you're not a writer. And for a long time, I thought a lot about writing and didn't really write very much. And then I learned that if I was going to really be a writer, I needed to write a lot. (laughs) So that's kind of what I did. I I, uh, about ten years ago, actually, uh, actually it was oh nine, fall of oh nine. I sort of resolved. Um, by that point, I was teaching uh, at a college, and I had been for several years. And so I had you know, summers, not necessarily off, but you know, a little bit more relaxed schedule. I was having spring break, Christmas break, blah blah blah. And there were always people who wanted me to be somewhere and do something. Uh, you know, family, whatever it was. And so I would feel like I didn't have time to write. And so that that fall, I decided uh, I decided I was going to write a play. I'd never written a play before, um, but I'd been doing some theater and had an idea for a play. I said, okay, this Christmas I'm going to take my break, and instead of spending it all with family like I normally would, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to spend a few days with family, and then I'm going to come back and have a week and a half, and I'm going to knock out the first draft of this play. And so I did that end um, of '09, beginning of 2010. Um, I knocked out that play, and uh, it's called Ask Me Anything. And it took about a year to get it polished and revised, went through a lot of drafts, uh, had a lot of people uh, who were involved in theater read it, and, and we actually did a table read um, long before it was ever really done so that I could hear what it sounded out loud, mm-hmm. and that was helpful, and I put it together again. So we, we finally produced that in May of 2011, and that changed everything for me as far as being a writer because up to that point I thought you know I, by then I'd had you know a few poems published I'd had short stories published whatever um, but was not having the kind of success that I hoped for and so you know you have these doubts you know people tell you that it's good or you know I went to MFA school and you know got in which obviously means you don't completely suck but right. you know the that kind of stuff but you still don't have a lot of confidence but you put on a play People are going to react how they react. <laughs> they don't know you. They don't owe you anything. They don't care how you feel. You know, and so either they're going to laugh where they're supposed to laugh or they are not. You know, and they're going to you know, gasp and cry when they're supposed to gasp and cry or they're not. And you know whether you've done your job as a writer if the show works. And wow. so you know, the live theater thing helped because they did laugh where they were supposed to laugh and they did gasp and they did cry and, you know, they did stand up and cheer when the show was over, even though it was, you know, 150 people who didn't know me from Adam. And so, you know, granted, obviously a lot of that is the cast and doing their job as well. Created uh, the theater is is, is an innately collaborative creation. You can't do it on your own. I mean, suppose you can do a one man show, but, uh, typically, that's not the way that works. So, you know, I can't take all the credit for that. But at that point, I knew, okay, I, I can create something that has the impact I'm meaning for it to have. Right. And so since then, my level of productivity has gone up dramatically. Um, since then, I've written at least one novel or a play every year. Wow. And had, you know, several of them produced um, so anyway, uh, that, that, that experience of getting to see a, a genuine audience reaction uh, changed my perception of, of my work. And it continues to. I, mean, I, I continue to do plays 
and have them produced and, and able to see that reaction live and know, okay, yeah, that line works. Oh, that line doesn't work. That's a problem. I need to revise that. You know, it, it makes a huge difference. And that affects ultimately how I write fiction because I have a clearer sense of what an audience can process and what an audience cannot process. And that, that changes the way I write. Even when I'm, even when I know I'm not going to get that live response, it'll have to be Gotcha. Anyhow, that, that's, that's, I think that gets us up to now, basically. <laughs> uh, so in terms of my process. Of the right. right. So, um, and I, and I, I knew you through most was with you through, through most of that as a, as a, as a writer, uh, would you say you're a writer now or are you a playwright? Well, I, I am a writer and that includes being a playwright and, okay. and a novelist, you know? Um, so, I mean, I've had novel published and so forth, um, at this point, Ian Baker's 45 came out in 2016, um, which was an interesting experience. Oh, he's got a copy. Um, I yeah. have a copy. It's this, not. This is a sorry. podcast, so you can't see it. But well, well you bring that with you to North Carolina, and I'll sign it. Okay, so, good. I'll do that. So, <laughs> yes, Ian Baker's forty-five. That's a fun story. The, I mean, the, the book is a fun read, I think. But the the uh, the, the cover is an interesting story. Um, the, uh, the the publisher had intended to put an entire. I don't know if anybody can see this. I don't know how this works when I'll, you're uh, posting these things. But, well. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll post this as a podcast, but I'll also post this to my YouTube channel. So if you want to Sounds describe the, the, the cover. Yeah, well, so the original cover that they had produced had a had a 380 oh. on, on the cover. That's not a 45. And I immediately <laughs> had a reaction and had to have a conversation with them about the fact that you can't have a book called Ian Baker 45 that centers around a Vietnam-era uh, <laughs> 45 pistol <laughs> and and put a 380 on the cover we had to have a chat and uh they didn't they the reason they'd done it is that they didn't have the they didn't have the right photos and they didn't have the money to go out and, and get it done and so i did that myself that that gun belonged to a co-worker um and i took that photo <laughs> that's awesome uh but yeah that's uh that's how that works so, uh, yeah, that, that, that experience was not, uh, I don't, I don't want to get into the details, but working with that particular publisher was not great, but it was nice to have something out there. Um, so the, the response, those who have read the book, it, it hasn't sold as well as I would have liked. Um, I, I don't guess there is a number that is as well as you would like, but, uh, in any, in, in any case, <laughs> the people who have read it really liked it. The responses have been good. So, uh, well, if people do want to read, if people do want to get get a copy of it, where can they get a copy of Ian Baker's Forty Five? Uh, it is available pretty much anywhere that you would buy books. Uh, obviously, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it on Barnes and Noble. Um, it's available for Kindle and uh, Nook and Kobo as well. Yeah, so those are all out there. There you go. Check out yeah, Israel Allen's Ian Baker's Forty Five. Yeah, yeah. Get you a copy. Uh, anyhow. Um, and then, of course, Bible and Ballbats came out not long after that, uh, which I actually self-published Bible and Ballbats, even though I think it's a better book because it it, it doesn't fit anywhere, and, and that's one of the issues with publishing. That I guess if you want to be a writer, you should be aware of this reality. Um, you can't have a lot to do with Christianity in your work and be expected to be published by somebody other than a Christian publisher. 
Mm. Uh, because the secular world does not want you to mention the name of Jesus ever. <laughs> That's just not a thing. Unless you're, you know, showing how awful somebody who claims to be a Christian has been, then you can do it. But otherwise, uh, you got to keep that out. And so, you know, they wouldn't touch that book with a 10 book pole, but it didn't fit in Christian market publishing at all because it is an incredibly violent story. Uh, mm. it's, uh, it's about some boys who are uh, trying to rescue an orphan from human traffickers. Uh, gotcha. So I, I don't want to give too much away, but um, it is a very brutal story. Uh, if you if you uh, if you ever read the Book of Judges, um, it, it it it's that level of brutality. It's okay. it's rough, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it, it is it is a rough story. But again, you can't do that in Christian market publishing. You know, they're they're not going to let you have a lot of teeth on the floor, and so um, <laughs> that's uh that book wasn't going to fit in either category. So I put it out myself. And interestingly, it was reviewed in a Christian magazine, got, got some good press, sold more than the other one, um, even though it was self-published. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I think it's a, I think it's a good book. I think it's the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. I, I need a copy. I need a copy. Yeah. Well, you, you come to Asheville, we'll make that happen. Um, so I have a copy with your name on it. Perfect. It doesn't have it, but it has my name on it, but I'll put your name in it. <laughs> okay. Sounds so, good. <laughs> co-author major chisholm <laughs> just, just write it on there co-author major chisholm <laughs> yeah i don't think i'm going to give you that credit but i will i will sign it thank uh, you so. i'd be honored um and uh okay so two novels i've written several of them um but uh you know some are available and some are not i think at this point the ones that you could actually go out and buy are are those two and then uh the Asheville stories, 95, 96, we were talking about earlier, which mm -hmm. is the first thing. Uh, there's a book called Ask Me Anything, uh, which is the novel version of the story that uh, the play that we were talking about earlier, okay. my first play. I wrote a novelized version of that. And then there uh, is a third one. What is the third one? Um, gosh, I should be able to answer this question. I wrote these books. Um, <laughs> what is the other one called? Homecoming King. Okay. Homecoming King is the is the other one. Um, they are loosely connected, and those were all published under the name Terry Pryor. Uh, okay. So anyway, they're available only on Amazon, I think. Point. But uh, anyway, they're out there. They're very different kinds of stories, hence the different names. So uh, Ian Baker is uh, you know sort of a standard secular thriller, not religious at all. Um, and that one, of course, published under Israel Allen. Uh, then. Bibles and all that. It's very much a Christian book, even though, again, it wouldn't fit in a traditional Christian market. And that is under my real name, Chris Allen. And then okay. the Terry Pryor books are all sort of uh, relationship stories. I wouldn't call them romance novels at all. It's not like that, but it is about that all three of those books are really about relationships, people's uh, marriages that are struggling and, you know, or how people got married in the first place. It, you know, uh, but all three of those books are sort of interconnected. You don't have to read them in order, but they are loosely connected, shared characters. Gotcha. Anyhow. Talk to me for a minute about the self-publishing aspect of things. Um, maybe, yeah, just about that. And I, I was going to say versus, yeah. versus going through a publisher, but if you're going to give, um, I, I saw an article recently, um, a musician said, um, if you're if you're a musician, he's a he's a well known musician. He said, if you're a musician, do not come to Nashville. He said, you get yourself a van and you go and you sing songs anywhere you can. Don't come to Nashville to try to make it. 
it's too saturated. Um, what would you what would you tell people who are who are aspiring writers or playwrights or or, or whatever um, about the publishing world? Because a lot of the stuff that we can do that publishers would you know normally typically in the past do, uh, we can do ourselves. So speak to that if you. Oh yeah. Well, on. you know the 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 bottom line what what a traditional you know, big market publisher can do for you is marketing. And so, you know, that there's definitely an advantage to having that uh, because they can get you in the Barnes and Noble store where people might see your book when they're not looking for you. Don't right. know what to don't know what to search, right. you know, on Amazon or wherever else they might be looking. And so, you know, that is the advantage. Um, the downside to that world is that it, it is very limited in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, your worldview affects what gets published. They, they you know, the publishing industry has a very secular and, and in many ways left-leaning uh, sort of worldview, most of them, not all. Um, and, so, and you see it in what they look for. If you, I, I follow uh, a hashtag MSWL manuscript wish list, which is what publishers and agents, uh, literary agents, are looking for, what they want to, to receive. And if you read those tweets every day, you, you see they have a very particular worldview, and that, that's what they want. So it can be difficult to sort of break in uh, as a result of that. If, you're, if your worldview doesn't fit with theirs, you're going to have a difficult time. Uh, so, so that's one of the downsides. The other downside is that you know uh, they're going to make a lot more money than you are. <laughs> uh, the, the the percentages are, are that way, and of course that's always the case. Uh, but of course they're taking all the risk. You know, they pay you in advance, they print all the books, they do all that stuff, and so. You know, that's part of it. And it is a very difficult process. You have to find a literary agent. You have to convince that person that your book is worthy. Go through their process. Get them to convince the publisher that, that it's uh, worth publishing and so forth. Uh, so it's a long and drawn-out process. Uh, but as I say, there are advantages. You're, you're marketed in a much broader way than you could probably do yourself, unless you're wealthy. Right. Uh, there are people who already have plenty of money and, and do self-publishing and and pour money into it. I can't think of the guy's name. There was a kid that published a book about 10 years ago and his parents put $100,000 of marketing in and it became this, you know, raging bestseller. Wow. Um, but, you know, most parents don't have $100,000 to drop on that. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, the point is, <laughs> that, that's the sort of the advantage of that side is the marketing and what they can do for you and getting your work out and, and reaching an audience that, that you wouldn't even know where the audience is. Right. Much less, you know, be able to connect to them or afford to do so. So, you know, they, they have, they offer a lot in that regard. Um, self-publishing on the other hand, you know, allows you complete creative control, which is a nice thing. You can, you don't have to worry about whether your book fits with somebody else's worldview or what the market thinks it wants at a given time. Um, you know, you don't have to, you know, as I say, I, I struggle as a, as a Christian writing fiction, uh, with the reality that the Christian, uh, Christian market is sort of sanitized for your protection. Um, there, there's a lot of things you can't say and do, uh, even though I think they're very biblical and in fact uh, are, are echoing of exactly what you find in scripture. You know, I don't think one of the great things about the Bible is that it does not sugarcoat right. who human beings are and how we behave. And I don't right. think good fiction should either. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, anyway, uh, but, but there are a lot of things you can't do in, Christian market fiction. And so, you know, uh, self-publishing allows you to sort of shed all of that. You can, you can 
do what you want to do and, and present things as they as you, as you think they should be presented. So right. you know that's the the advantage there. Um, the process itself is very easy now if you are computer literate at all. Um, you know Amazon and a number of other services provide uh, publishing on demand or print on demand. You often see the phrase POD print on demand. Um, you go in and, and put in your your file so you create the interior of the book on, on Word or whatever, um, get it set up, um, and then you, you put it into their system, and it'll tell you where you've made mistakes. You can review it and look through it and see uh, you know, whether your formatting is actually working properly if you've got that all straight. Oh, wow. They slowly take you through the process, and then you can see um, as you there's a review process. You can catch some of those things that way. It's not going to catch all your typos or anything, but right. it, it will catch a lot of formatting problems uh, let you know, hey, we, we can't print this the way you've done it. Ah. <laughs> so, you know, you can fix it. Um, so it's not that bad. And, you know, as if you're not a uh, you're not a graphic design person, the cover can be an issue, but they actually help a lot with that. You can use some of their prefab setups and you just drop images in and then hmm. it allows you to put the text over it. So um, some of the graphic design problems that, that you would have if you don't know how to do that, um, I, I'm very blessed in that um, I have a lot of friends who are graphic designers, and they're kind enough to do this for me. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you look at the, uh, yeah, well, that was done by the publisher. Uh, I, I took the photo, but they did right. the, the, the design work. Um, but if you look at the Bibles and Ballbats cover, um, I think it's absolutely fantastic, and that is the work of Catherine Grayson Nans, who is a friend of mine. Um, I think she was Catherine Grayson when she did it. She's now Nan. She and she married another friend of mine. Um, so the name has changed. But uh, in any case, uh, I don't think they were married yet when, when the cover was created. But in any case, that cover was, was Catherine's work, and it, it looks great. And every time I see the book, I'm like, yeah, I, I chose wisely when I asked her to do that. <laughs> um, but <laughs> the point is you can, you, can, you can get that stuff done. Um, and the other great thing about the self-publishing is that because it's print on demand, if there are any problems, you can fix them. So, for example, uh, my uh, my job changed, and there was a note on the cover with you know what I was doing at the time, and so you can just change that, and the oh. next person buys the book, it looks different for them than it did for the person who bought it yesterday. Really? Um, so yeah, you can you can do that kind of thing very quickly. Um, if you somebody finds a typo, you know they can tell you switch it, and the very next person who buys the book is going to get the corrected version so That's it's cool. not like you unless you order a bunch of them printed for yourself it's not like you have all of these copies lying around that you know right you have to worry about storing and selling and, and so forth so anyhow uh, it has its advantages and it's not a complicated process i found it quite simple and effective i'm trying to find uh, bibles and ball bats on amazon but i can't find it oh that's not good Is did you search no, it's Chris. Um, that one's under Chris. Did you search Bibles and ball bats spelled out properly? Be it Bibles and ball bats. Yeah. Right. Two words. Ball bats. Uh. You will also find it's, it's fascinating how these things happen. There's my book, and then there's a book called Bat, uh, Bible, Bat, and Ball, I think, which is about uh, baseball and church. Um, but anyhow... <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's it. That's the one. Um, that's, that's the cover. Uh, the back cover is also cool. Um, but uh, oh, that is in any event. 
Nice. Um, so if I wanted to, if I wanted to put together a, a book, even with pictures in it, I could do it through the Amazon thing and they would just kind of format it and tell you yeah. whether or not that's really, well, you, that's you, nice. you, you have to do all the formatting, you get it together so, and then you put it in the system and it'll tell you what you screwed up. Yeah. And so then you fix it and, and re-upload. We're going to have to talk yeah. about this off, off, uh, okay. off, off the podcast <laughs> because I am working on a book. Okay. That's, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not fiction. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. A, it's, it's a, yeah. it's, a, it's, a uh, it's a true story. They used to call the system create space. I think it is now called Kindle direct publishing now. I okay. That's what you need to look up. Kindle direct publishing. Um, gotcha. anyhow, I, I find their system very easy to use. Um, and so I, that's what I've done. It's, and it doesn't cost you anything to, to okay. set it up. So, you know, if, if you're willing to do the work uh, yourself, you can put it all together and, and have it up and running without spending a single cent. Uh, so, you know, the first time somebody buys one, that's when you start getting money and you don't have to worry about, uh, you know, laying outlaying a bunch of money to get your book up and running. Right. So, so it's not like a, you know, you use their system and then, and, but, but for 10 bucks, you can add on this really cool cover or anything like that. So it's completely free. Not that I'm aware of. If, if they have that kind of stuff, I haven't noticed it. I mean, obviously great. they're going to take a, a chunk of the money when they sell stuff. Right. Know? So and what is, so, what does that look like on your end? Is there, a, well, your percentages are different depending on how you set it up and where it's being sold. If things are purchased directly through Amazon, you get more money than if it's sold through somebody else. Cause then everybody else can get the cut. Sure. You know, because Amazon's going to get their chunk, and then if it's sold through Barnes and Noble, they're going to get some, and so you get less. That's the way that works. But most of the cost of a book is is the printing, and so you know they're they're sort of subsidizing that in a way because they have the system set up to do it quickly in in that way. Whereas if you tried to print five hundred or a thousand or have many copies on on your own, the cost would be right. enough to probably keep you from being able to do it at all. Right. I love the, just the print on demand and the correcting of, of things. That's really cool. And if you, ideally you, you know, have it completely perfect before you start trying to sell it to people. But you know, when you publish an (laughs) 85,000 word book, there's a good chance that you missed something. Sure. Um, Sure. You know, in my own case, I have friends who edit. My mom will go through it. My mom's a total grammar Nazi and she will catch things that I missed. And so, you know, it's, it's, I have a I have a team of people that work with me on things. Um, well, I may have to anyhow. Put you, I'll put you on my team to edit. Sounds my good. So yeah, so that's that's a good question. I think for um, for people who are wanting to do that, if if I'm writing a book, can I share that with you through the Amazon thing and say, hey, can you look over this, or would I need to do that? What you would want to prior? do would be to just send the word file prior and get it edited properly before you start. Gotcha. So the Amazon thing is not like a tag team kind of thing where. No, I mean, you you can do it that way. I mean, when, when Catherine did the cover, I just gave her the login so that she could upload from her computer rather than having to share file and so forth, that kind of thing. But, um, but it's not designed for that sort of uh, collaboration. Gotcha. Huh? Well, that's, yeah, Yeah. that's cool. Um, What, um, you, you kind of mentioned it earlier with the poetry, um, cause it's, it's always one of my questions when I'm talking to artists and, and, and people who, who make things, um, 
I even asked a, my woodworker friend, Nate, um, what's, what's the one thing, or, or is there one thing? I have a painting in my garage that is horrible, but I keep it because it reminds me that I make garbage sometimes. Um, and is there, a, is, there, is there something you've written um, in your past, whether it be poetry or whatever, that you just look at and go, you know, it's just garbage. <laughs> do you, or do you just, or do you, you know, or do you just do that? Oh, no, I, I never throw anything away. Okay. Never throw anything away in yeah. terms of writing. No, yeah, what's, what's that? What's, um, what's that thing? What does that look like? Oh, I have, I have, uh, you know, several notebooks full of poetry. Um, I keep all the drafts. I have the original handwritten draft of everything I've ever done. Um, I say everything, everything I've done in the last 20 years or so, uh, 25 probably. Um, you know, some of the childhood stuff, I have no idea where that ended up, but um, anything I've done since college, I have the handwritten draft. I, I save all that stuff. Um, I even save the pencils. I, <laughs> I realize this is very bizarre behavior, but I, I write everything uh, first drafts by hand with a pencil. You know, just, I've tried to write in pen. It doesn't work very well. I've tried to compose on keyboard. That doesn't work very well. Uh, what works for me is to sit down with an old-fashioned pencil sharpener and, and a pencil and, and loose-leaf paper and, and write. And so I keep all that loose-leaf stuff. I keep the pencils. I mark on them. I write on the pencil with a, with a magic marker what, what I was writing with that. You froze up. Oh, you froze up. I'm not. I hope you're, st you're still recording. There you are. You're back. Okay, now you're back. You're back. Now you you're froze back. up too. Um, so, okay. Okay, that was weird. <clears throat> says my um, says my internet connection is unstable. Also, um, we're so happens. during this podcast we're actually doing a Zoom, uh, so we can see each other's faces. But I do know that um, with Zoom, it is there a time limit? Thirty minutes, something like that. I have no idea, and I don't know what it will do. That's a good question. We'll find um, out. If not, we'll figure it out. I will need to take. If it a, kicks us off, we can get back on. Yeah. So, uh, well, this is this would be a good time for. Let, let me, um, well, let me finish that thought. You you write on the side of the pencil with. I, I just make a note of what it was I was writing with that pencil. So, gotcha. I, I know, think, so I can look at it and go, "Oh, that was I wrote." Uh, you know, Ian Baker with that pencil. I wrote uh, Emerald Heist with this. Whatever. Yeah. In terms of keeping bad stuff, I mean, some of the stuff that's even out there available to read, I, I kind of am, am uncomfortable with at times. I, you know, uh, the Asheville Stories book that was my first novel, it's available for people to buy and read, but, you know, I, I'm not going to argue that it's my best work, um, but I, I keep it available because, A, you know, I think it's interesting and there are people who actually do love it. And so I wouldn't want to keep it from an audience that, somebody who this is exactly what they want to read, even though I might not want to read it again at this right. point. Um, but at the same time, it, I think it's healthy to see the progression of a writer. You know, I think often we, uh, as, as aspiring writers, we have the idea that you just sort of show up and you're, you know, Ernest Hemingway out of nowhere and, and it doesn't work that way. And so I, I sometimes think it's helpful for people to be able to see the progression of, you know, okay, if you read actual stories, you can see that, you know, I, I think there's value in it. I wouldn't have it out there if I didn't think it was any good. Right. Um, but you can definitely see the next book I wrote was Homecoming King. And I think if you read Homecoming King, 
you can see that I got a lot better <laughs> between those two books. Um, and so, you know, I think that's good. I think that's, it's good as a writer to be honest with the world that, you know, Hey, this doesn't just show up whole. It's the process. And so, you know, you, you can, you can see that. And, and hopefully that what that does for a reader is to say, Oh, I, you know, okay, maybe I'll write something that won't be great, but, but I, that'll be part of me getting to the, to writing what I really want to write down the road and, and have it be as good as I want it to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm willing to, if somebody, you know, think some of those early books are just not very good. I'm willing to suffer whatever shame they want to throw at me sure. for putting that out there um, as a way of, of being honest with, with other writers that, hey, you, you, you can start here and, and you can get better. Right, yeah. So, and I think getting better is 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 important. I, I hate it when a band comes out and goes, this is the best album we've ever put out. Well, then you should stop because uh, you can't get any better than that. You know, and... Uh, <laughs> But, well, I would hope that every album they put out, they feel like is the best album they've ever done because it should be better than the previous. Exactly. But that doesn't mean they can't make a better album later. Right. Um, although <laughs> probably they can't. I mean, that's the you know the <laughs> the issue with music, you know, and with writing generally. I think you know you're going to put out something that is the best thing you'll ever do, and that probably won't be the last thing you ever do. Right. Um, you know. Yeah. You you may get better as a as a writer, as a songwriter, as a painter, as whatever, and do you know some things better, but that doesn't mean the whole will be better. Right. Um, you know, at some point there's going to be something that was your best work, but that doesn't mean there's not value in all the other work. You know, I mean, let's say I write 50 books over the course of my life, you know, 10 of them are probably going to be the really, really good ones, and the other 40, not as much, but that doesn't mean that the worst out of the 50 doesn't have value. Right. You know, yeah. It isn't and, something that somebody can read and appreciate. And the same thing with song or poem or, you know, a painting, whatever it is that you're creating, you know, that thing that is the worst thing you've ever done, that crappy painting that you hate that's in your garage, you know, there may well be people who would look at that and, and feel what you meant for them to feel when you were doing it, even though you look at it now and go, oh, that's not very successful. It might actually connect with some, you know, viewers and have value in that, you know. And so it's, even though it, it might be the worst thing you'll ever do, that doesn't mean it, it has no value at all. Beautifully said. And this is a great time for me to pay some bills and uh, take a break. And uh, so we'll be right back with uh, Chris Allen right after this break. Welcome back to the Creative Liberty Podcast. And today we're talking with author Chris Allen, Israel Allen, and... uh, Tyler Gooch. No, what was his name? Ty, t- Tucker Carl. <laughs> Terry Pryor. Is Terry Pryor. Name. That's it. Terry Pryor. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's jump into um, new stuff. Um, you have a YouTube channel. You have Wild Hair Productions. and uh, But let's go into plays first. Okay. Well, um, I should say I don't have Wild Hair Productions. Wild Hair Productions is a... Uh, community theater in Greenwood, South Carolina, that was started by Bess Park. Uh, she is the creative executive director of Wild Hair Productions. I am the vice president of the board of directors for Wild Hair Productions, and so I do a lot of stuff, and uh, they they produce some of my work. Um, one of the things that uh, we, we talked earlier about how you, you get books published. Uh, if you want to play published, the way that works typically is that you 
find somebody who's willing to do it. Uh, first, you've got to write the thing, obviously. Right. Um, and, and writing plays is very different from writing books because live theater has all sorts of limitations. There are things you can put in a book or in a movie and stop and start and you know, edit and so forth that you just can't do on stage. You've got everything has to be able to be physically on the stage and happen in real time. And so um, it's always, I've taught playwriting classes and it's always tough to get people to grasp the difference between a movie and a play. Um, and that's really the biggest difference is you got to be able to physically do the thing. Right. In- you froze up. There we go. So, yeah. Um, anyhow, so, so yeah, uh, first you got to write the thing, but then you have to get somebody to produce it. Um, so, and put it on a stage somewhere. And then once it's produced, you can start submitting it to play publishers. Okay. So, uh, Wild Hair does some of my plays, um, one of which was published recently, I uh, say recently, back in July, uh, The Emerald Heist, which is a little dinner theater murder mystery um, takes place on a train. Train. It was uh, It's actually one of the, the more fun experiences I've had as a writer. Um, th- th- we were asked, uh, Wild Hair was asked, to train at a train museum. So they, they do this every year. They have a fundraising event on. And so they asked, hey, can you put on you know, murder mystery or, or something like that in the train car? Okay. And they had actually done that a couple of times in the years past, but they didn't have a new script for this, this year's event. And so they just said, hey, Chris, can you write a play that can be formed on a train. And so, okay, that's, that's a fantastic sort of you know, puzzle to figure out. Um, and so I, I wrote The Emerald Heist, uh, which takes place on a train, and we did it, and it went beautifully. We had a great time. We did two shows on the train car. Um, went, went over really well. I was surprised. You never know whether your sense of humor is going to play with a group or not right um and so you know and that show is is so my sense of humor i because <laughs> i wrote it very quickly um i wasn't trying to, to please anybody but myself and yeah. so I, I wrote something that i thought was funny um and evidently other people don't think it's funny too because you know not only did it go well when we did it but it was, it was uh, taken by the publisher immediately um you know put out as quickly as they could get it out came out last july and has been produced by 18 different theaters um, all over the world, actually, mostly in the U.S., but it's been produced in in Ethiopia and Canada, and it's scheduled to be produced in Australia, depending on whether their COVID shutdowns allow for theater. It's uh, supposed to happen at a a, a school in in Australia in June, so we'll see if that plays or not. But uh, anyhow, it's it's gone really well with the advice. But uh, if you're looking for a dinner theater murder mystery, uh, you, can, you can look up the Emerald Heist Pioneer Drama Service uh, the publisher. Uh, they're in Colorado. They're not that far from you. Pioneer Drama Service uh, uh, outside Denver. I forget the name of the actual town. Okay. Actually, their address might be Denver. It's in that area. Uh, but yeah, um, really good people to work with. I've been very pleased with my experience with Pioneer. Um, so they, they, they've been really kind and quick and efficient. And, and, and boy, did they pay quickly. The, the, the fiscal year ended, and then two weeks later, I get the check, which is rare. Typically, you're waiting right. for weeks and maybe months for a publisher to get any money. Um, but they actually sent me my check right away, uh, and then and the note in it said that they were apologizing it was late. And I'm like, no, oh, no, no. I, 
like you guys are the best. Um, anyway, so, um, I've had a, I've had a good experience with them. So, um, but yeah, we, we do a lot of shows um, with with Wild Hair. Uh, you asked about the name earlier, Wild Hair. Uh, I didn't come up with that. That was uh, that was Beth's idea. Uh, but it's it's not wild hair like a hair you pluck. It's wild right. hair or like a, a, a wild animal, yeah. uh, which is probably pretty fitting. You know, we are sort of a, a a wild little group at Wild Hair Productions. We do a lot of different things. You know, most community theaters, just by nature of, of their communities and their audiences, ended up end up with a sort of narrow what they can do and what they can't do. And the whole point of Wild Hair was to say, no, we're going to do whatever we want to do, and an audience will find us. And so that's what we have done. And so Wild Hair will do, you know, things as traditional as Shakespeare and Arthur Miller, but at the same time we'll do, you know, brand new work that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Um, you know, things that have, that have gone off Broadway, you know, that were you know, things you would never hear of in South Carolina. Uh, we'll put them on. Um, and then we do brand new work. Um, we've done other folks working. We've done mine. So it, it's, it's a great little group of folks that put those things together so and it, the joy of playwriting is, is seeing things i wrote a show last summer um has the, the most absurdly long title um so the play is called the uh, the starfish island south carolina unified town council and school board meeting and variety show <laughs> That's the name of the, the, the play. We just call it Starfish Island because no one can, even I obviously have trouble getting all of that out. Right. Um, but anyway, so we so I wrote the show called Starfish Island that, that takes place at a town council meeting. When I was uh, in my 20s, I was a newspaper writer and I had to cover county commission meetings and school board meetings. And things get weird. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to any of those meetings, but they are they are sometimes the most painfully boring thing in the world and other times the most bizarre thing you will ever see in your life, the stuff that gets said. And so uh, I had this idea for a, for a show that takes place at a town council meeting. So Starfish Island, um, the, the, the premise of the show is that the mayor finds these meetings so painfully boring that he has decreed, if you want to present to the council, you have to do so in song. <laughs> oh, so yes. they, have a, they have a town troubadour who uh, plays guitar and then if you want to, if you want to do it, you know, present, you, he has a list of tunes that, that you can choose from, you know, old songs that are public domain. And so you choose your tune and then you have to write your own lyrics and, and present your, your case, whatever it is you want, you know, you, whatever you're doing uh, to the council. Well, then the council has to respond in song. And so they write their lyrics. One of the things that bothers me about musicals is that people just sort of magically know the lyrics, you know? sort of a bizarre thing. And so I wanted to make it realistic. And so in this, this situation, the council is writing their lyrics and to give them time to do that, they call up locals to do variety show acts. <laughs> and so the, the town council meetings are the, the town variety show as well. And so it, it allows you to have more participation in your play because those are not written in. It's just whoever you call up. And so you know, if you're doing the show, you have your cast and, and all of the stuff written for that. The right. variety show acts or whoever you get to come perform and so it's different every night you don't know you know what you're gonna get it's fantastic anyhow but that was you know the joy for me as a writer i was not in the show i didn't direct i didn't have anything to do with it i i showed up for the first reading gave them some explanation of kind of how i thought of some things and then i turn up opening night 
and this show that I see is the show <laughs> that I wrote, but is also something else entirely. Yeah. Because you've had a director and, and you know, a cast of a dozen or so people who've all added their stuff. And that, that is the joy of theater to me is that you, you get this, you know, creative stew that happens and, you know, sometimes it can go bad, but most of the time it ends up having, you know, way more flavor than anything you would have cooked on your own. Right. And, what wild hair is like we, we you, know, you might go to a wild hair show and see something as traditional as, as Shakespeare, but you might see something that's experimental like that and, and anything can happen. So um, it's, it's a fun group to work with. It can be really good. Uh, which I guess leads, I'm just going to keep talking. Keep here. talking. Uh, you're, you're feeling topic. the space and I but, love it. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing that I've been doing lately because of theme, um, we, you know, we can't do shows. Um, right. Theaters are shut down all over the country. And so, uh, which is a huge problem for groups like us because you suck to pay rent and you're not bringing in any money from shows. So we've been doing a lot of fundraisers and, and to try to keep the name out there and keep things going. I've been writing short plays that we do on YouTube. Okay. Uh, the, one of the pr- problems with the poor. There, there's no sense of, you know, it's not like you, you can order streaming rights when you sign up to do a play, when you, when you contract to do a play and pay the royalties to do that. There's no option to check the box for streaming. Right. It's just not how this is done. And so, you know, it's not like we could just turn any of our plays that we were hoping to do mm-hmm. into an online version and do it that way. It's just not set up for that. And so, you know, I had to create new work that then I own the copyright to, and so I don't have to worry about that. And so I've written three different short plays in the last few months that we've produced as you know, online work and put up on YouTube just, just to keep it going. Um, you know, those things are, are out there for people to watch if they're interested. And those are under the, the name Wild Hair Productions, correct? Well, they're, they're actually on my channel, which is the, just because it was the easiest thing to do at the time, which is Total Perspective Pub. That's one word. Um, total, total perspective pre- pub, uh, right? Uh, short for total perfe- total perspective publishing, which is the label I use if I self-publish things. Gotcha. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the channel is, is total perspective pub, um, but the the videos we consider to be produced by Wild Hair Productions, um, they're under that label. So yeah, but if you if you go to YouTube and just search total perspective pub, you'll come to our channel, uh, my channel, and our work on it uh, but yeah there's three new plays that have gone up in the last month and a half i guess mm-hmm. um short plays all around 12 minutes um, so one is a uh, one is a sort of sequel to starfish island uh, about the town council trying to figure out how they're going to enforce social distancing on the island i watched that um, one that was it, hilarious <laughs> thank you thank you I enjoyed that. And those, those are the original cast members, except for one. We had to make one change. Uh, the, the lady that, that played the secretary was not able to, to, to join us for that, unfortunately. Uh, although the, the lady that took on the role in the video um, had been had played another role in the show. And so she, she is an original cast member. She's not playing the same role. But, gotcha. Um, anyhow, we, we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, yeah, we, we've been trying to, to keep people entertained, but also remind them that you know theater is a thing and it's important and hopefully we'll get it back soon. 
Um, hmm. What's uh, what's let's say quarantine's over with. Um, you guys can get back together. What's what's on the slate then? Uh, well, for wild hair, we had planned to do. Uh, I mentioned Arthur Miller earlier. We were planning to do all my sons in April. Okay, of course that had to be stopped. That's why I have hair right now. Uh, typically, I keep my head shaved, but I'm supposed to play Jim Bayless, and uh, a doctor in 1947 would not have his head shaved. Right. Um, so I had thrown my hair out for that purpose. But uh, anyhow, hopefully, we will put that on. Um, in the summer, maybe if we're allowed, we, we don't know. We yeah. still don't know what the, the protocols are going to be. Um, there are other shows that were canceled that we hope to reschedule. Um, so we'll see what we're able to do and what the, the publishers will allow. Sometimes there are restrictions about um, certain shows are not allowed to be produced too close together at the same time. Uh-huh. So there are geographic restrictions. Um, the publishers will, will put those kind of things on. So we don't know what we'll get to do. Um, I am very slowly working on a new piece in collaboration with some of the kids. Uh, we have a lot of teenagers who, who do stuff with wild hair. And I asked them several months ago, hey, well, if, 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 if you could just have any play, not a, 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 not a play that already exists, but if there were, is there a story you'd want to do? If, if you could have it, if, you know, and so, and they said, yes, absolutely. And they, they powwowed uh, a few of them that, that are regular uh, participants in these things. And they came back to me with, with an idea, uh, sort of a, a loose idea. And so I'm, I am going to put that together uh, with them back and forth. We'll, we'll be, I've, I've made some notes, haven't really started writing yet, but uh, I'll sort of write a, an outline of a script basically and give it back to them and collaborate. I wanted to have them be as involved in that as possible uh, because I want it to be their show. And, and I know uh, this, this may sound bad. I don't mean it bad at all. I mean, it as a positive. I don't think any of them are ready to write their own play. Sure. Um, but, but I want them to do as much of it as they can as a way of, of developing that. I think at least a couple of those kids probably have the ability to eventually be playwrights themselves. And so I'm thinking if I can begin with a collaboration, um, that'll give them a springboard, and then when they get to perform the show, eventually they'll have a, a, a sense of, of what I sense with asking anything of, of how your work plays and what that can mean for you later as a writer. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort of ease them into what it took me 30 years to figure out. Right. Uh, hopefully, by the time they graduate high school, they'll, they'll know some of those things and have a jump start for their own creative efforts later on. So, so that's on my agenda. That's cool. Um, where do you find inspiration? Uh, everywhere. I mean, uh, you know, talking about Starfish Island earlier, I, I had thought about, you know, maybe writing a town council related play at some point because of my experience as a newspaper writer. But the actual spark of that idea happened because uh, Wally Dorn, who's a, a regular actor in shows, he and I were doing a show, and when we were out, we were at a, at a festival. Uh, in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And we happened to see that uh, this may offend some readers or listeners, I guess, but uh, this is what happened. We, we were at a Taco Bell getting food in the drive through and we saw that we were next to a strip club. And right across the street from the strip club was a Baptist church. 
And that reminded me of the fact that in many towns, and I dealt with this when I was a newspaper writer, you know, there are ordinances that you can't do that. You can't have the strip club that close to the church. Right. Um, and so anyway, that sparked a conversation about, you know, those meetings and how contentious they can be and how crazy they can be. And that conversation is what led me to actually write that show. Um, so just the, the fact that Wally wanted Taco Bell ended up being the, the spark <laughs> that, that led to that getting done. And so, you know, my point is that it, it, sometimes it's very random things that will generate an idea. Uh, Bibles and ball bats came from watching a movie. I was, I was alone watching a movie and it was a, some kind of spy thing. It was some, you know, guy running around in Europe and, and the, I often talk to the screen when I'm alone, yeah. you know, and I said something, I wish I could remember what I said, but it sounded so Southern to me in you know my own ears right. like wow that was very southern whatever i just said and and it occurred to me that you never see southern characters in action stories hmm. unless they're the villain right. you know like it's just not a thing and they're always either they're evil or they're idiots sweet home you know? alabama come on now <laughs> that's not an action film <laughs> um, <laughs> this is true yeah, God, God love Reese Witherspoon. She's, she's one of the very few <laughs> Southern people that actually presents Southernness in a natural way. Right. Um, yeah, it's always this caricature of Southern life. But um, anyway, the point is that I, you know, it started with that germ of an idea of what would it look like to have Southern people in an action story, hmm. um, and you know, it became something far more important later. Um, you know, that story deals with the very real issue of, of human trafficking. Uh, but it started out with just the silly idea of I want some, you know, wild-eyed Southern boys in an action story. You know, I, I want to see that. And nobody's willing to do it, so I have to write it myself, uh, <laughs> which I guess is, is sort of fundamental to what I do as a writer. I write things I want to have. You know, right. I, want, I write things I want to read or I want to see. Or, you know, I think that would be funny. Um, so, you know, it's, it's in many ways a very selfish process because I'm creating things that are really for me. But hopefully – connect to a, a broader audience right absolutely i paint for myself i mean unless i'm doing a commission piece but yeah when i'm doing my own stuff there's an audience yeah, yeah. um what's the mm, weird question what's the one thing if you could write that one novel or that one play or that one whatever what would it be? Hmm. Like if you could write. I have a list that's very long. Um, yeah. Okay. Good. You mean that, that one thing that I absolutely want to get done before I die? Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. Gosh. I don't know if I had to just pick one. I don't know or, what that would or be. Or would you just talk about three or four? I don't care. Uh, well, I mean, I I, uh, I have a, a lot of notes about a uh, what I think will be a trilogy dealing with a, a second American civil war. Um, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too political, but I think if we don't start behaving better and treating each other better, we probably will have a second civil war and it won't look anything like the first. Um, it won't be divided geographically. It will be an ideological conflict. Sure. Uh, and so that's, that's sort of what I'm envisioning in this, this story about this uh, teenage boy dealing with, with really the aftermath more than the war itself. Um, of, a, of a second civil war. Anyway, that's that's on my agenda. Um, one of the things that I 
hope to write soon. Um, actually, I hope to write that soon. But uh, one of the other things that I want to write, um, I, I get frustrated with action stories either in, in book or film because people do stupid things all the time. You know, the characters always make bad choices. And it's very obvious as a writer why that happens. It happens because the, the writer knows if they made the right choice, the story will end too soon. Right. I need them to do something stupid in order to create the next problem that will continue the story. And so, you know, as, as they used to say about Dickens, he's trying to keep the end away from the beginning. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the work. Um, I want to write an action story where the character makes the right choice every time, but it still doesn't work. You know, like, like, somebody who's actually following all those rules that you have in your head of what you should do in these kinds of situations. Um, I want to write a story where he's, he's deliberately consciously following those rules and doing the right thing. And yet it continues to just go haywire, Yeah, you know? And so anyway, that's, uh, that's on my agenda. Um, I wouldn't consider those all that, you know, deep and meaningful, but uh, they're, they're fun things. The first one, in some ways, I suppose, is deep and meaningful. Again, if we don't start being more conscious of how we're treating our neighbors and how we're thinking about our neighbors, particularly those who disagree with us, I think we're headed for a very bad place. Um, I don't don't want to get into political conversation, but uh, I think both sides are very guilty of that, that that we don't, we, we are not conscious enough of the reality that, that those are human beings that we're in conflict with. Right. I agree. If we don't stop, stop acting the way we're acting and start loving our neighbors a little better, uh, I think we're headed for a very bad end. So, anyway, uh, so that has some, some value, I guess, in pointing that out. <laughs> I don't tend to write social commentary. It's not really my goal. <laughs> right. I'm uh, happy to make it in other environments, but, but not in fiction. Uh, yeah. Stephen King once said, if you want to preach, get a soapbox. Um, and and I, I think that makes sense. Uh, it's not the place for fiction. Right. Yeah, true, true. Um, what do you read? Wow, I read everything. I mean, not everything, obviously. Um, I read a lot of different things. Um, I read a lot, depending on what I'm writing or preparing to write, I'll read a lot in a genre. Um, I wrote... Uh, over the summer, um, right after the play that we were just talking about, I wrote a new novel over the summer and just, just finished revisions a couple months ago uh, on, a, on a novel that takes place at a theater festival. Uh, as I mentioned, I've done those. I've done a few of them. So I wrote a, a story about a teenage girl who uh, wrote a play that is at one of these festivals and the chaos that is surrounding her as she's trying to do that. So anyway, while I was... Uh, preparing to write that, and then as I was doing the revisions, I read a lot of young adult novels with you know, young girl uh, protagonists, lead, lead characters, because I just kind of wanted to know what was out there, um, not, not as a way of figuring out how to write my story. I felt like I knew what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it, but I needed to know, you know who, who was publishing this kind of thing and who, uh, who the agents were who handled this kind of thing, and so I needed to read a lot of those books. So sometimes that how I choose my reading, uh, essentially market research. Sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I, I will read a lot in a very narrow area because I'm trying to learn more about that market. So, you know, when I'm writing a thriller, I'll read a bunch of thrillers. Uh, when I'm writing a young adult novel, I'll read a bunch of young adult novels, that kind of thing. Uh, where I wrote The Emerald Heist, I read a bunch of murder mysteries, you know, murder 
district dinner theater plays. I read Agatha Christie. Of yeah, well, I've read a lot of Agatha Christie, and, and uh, there's there's some problems with her writing. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know if we want to have that conversation. Shut your mouth. She has a tendency. <laughs> she has a tendency to cheat in that she uh, allows her detective to see things that are not shown to the audience until the detective is ready to reveal right. the solution, and that that to me is. <clears throat> a bad choice. But again, she's trying to keep the end away from the beginning and keep the reader from figuring it out too soon. Right. And that's the cheat she's chosen to use. <laughs> I, I, I try to avoid cheat. Yeah. Um, yeah. Raymond Carver said no cheap tricks. Actually, no, that was the, uh, I think it was Ezra Pound that said no cheap tricks. And I think it was Raymond Carver who said, no, no tricks. And cheap then, or otherwise. And then there's a the band cheap uh, trick. So yes. Yes, which is a totally other thing, and I enjoy Cheap Trick, um, or did. I, I right. heard them in a while. So. I'm not sure if I even answered your question. You did. You read a lot. You do a lot of op research, um, and you you don't read everything, but um, you read a lot. Read um, I also read a lot of Bible-related stuff. If you, I don't know how clearly, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you can see all the stuff behind me, but uh, I read a lot of Bible translations. I, I get into that. Um, so, uh, on this shoulder, yeah. there's the uh, Robert Alter's translation of the Old Testament, which is brilliant. Um, nice. His commentary is fascinating. Uh, he's the. Uh, I'm not sure if he's even religiously Jewish. He is ethnically Jewish, but uh, he's an expert on on uh, Hebrew and a lot of other uh, Semitic languages from the region and the era, and so he has a lot of insight about the cultures that were around the Israelites when these things are being written. And that helps not only with language, but understanding the cultural relevance of some of the passages at the time, you know, uh, particularly for me, particularly a lot of the, the Levitical codes and how that would have fit in with the cultures, the broader cultures around them, the importance of, of distinguishing themselves by not doing what the other people were doing. Right. Uh, I would enjoy a lot that. Of insight to that. So, uh, yeah, I, I would recommend that. So, anyway, I read a lot. I read a lot of variety. You can see over the other shoulder some Charles Mann books about uh, uh, one is about uh, America before the arrival of Europeans. 1491? Um, 1492 is the first one. Or no, 1491. Fourteen ninety three, which is about the Columbian Exchange, essentially okay. how the the back and forth between Europe and the Americas changed the world. Uh, anyway, so yeah, I try to read a little of everything. I, the, the world is an interesting place, and I, there's no way I'll ever learn everything I want to learn. No, with as much time as we have, I mean, minus quarantine time. Um, but uh, <laughs> I had another. You, you oh, so um. As a, as a Christian, um, and uh, you touched on it earlier, uh, you, you talk about, you know, you talked about judges and, and writing stuff that's, that's brutal. Um, but as a, as a, as a, I don't know, I don't know if this is more of a commentary statement or, or a question, but, uh, how do you keep away from the cliche? Hey, this is, you know, I know you and I know how you do it, but for our audience's sake, I mean, like, what's that? What's that? What, what's the question I'm trying to ask? Like you, you don't write, you write things that are real and, and Christianity's messy and the cross was messy and you know, all that. But 
I, I feel like, I feel like I hate that term. I think, or I believe that, um, when you're, when you're producing a piece of art, even as a, as a, as a Christian, um, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Take it away, Chris. I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> tell me, tell me what you think. What, I think and you, what I'm trying to get to, because I, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly what you're trying to get to, but I'll tell you how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, what, what I think about it, which is this, uh, you know, I started reading the Bible for myself when I was seven years old, uh, maybe a little earlier, um, and have done so almost every day, uh, most of my life. So right. you know, I'm 45 now. Um, so I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on, on what's in there. I, I've read the thing cover to cover probably 13 times in the last 10 years, um, something like that. I, that's when I started keeping track. Anyway, the point is that, you know, I, I, I'm, nobody's an expert really on the scriptures, but, you know, I feel like I, I know them reasonably well. Sure. And, and they're messy. At, at no point did they try to pretend that people are different than they really are. At no point do they try to pretend, sorry, something popped up on the screen. Um, at no point do they try to pretend uh, people are living better than they are, are uh, that we're any less sinful than we really are. Um, they, they present things very raw. You know, right. This is the reality. And as a result, we need a savior. And, and so and they tell us about the savior as well. Um, but at no point is anything sugar-coated or whitewashed. Um, and so I, as a writer, don't believe that I should be indifferent. Um, if the word of God refuses to sugarcoat, then I will take my cue from that, and I will refuse to sugarcoat. And that mm -hmm. means that sometimes my characters use language that other Christians will find very offensive. Um, be offended. I, I, you know, I'm yeah. not going to have that <laughs> argument. I'm just, I'm just, you know, I believe that this character in this situation would use this language, and so there it is. Um, you know, and I believe this character in this situation would, would have sex with this person he's not married to. And so that's what's on the page. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that things are any different than they are. I don't, I don't hold back from that. But at the same time, I, I refuse to put something out into the world that I think is uh, celebrating sin or uh, pretending on the other side, pretending that, that these things are less destructive than they really are. Right. You know, uh, you read a book like Homecoming King, which you mentioned earlier, you know, the main character is a womanizer and there's a lot of sex in that book. Um, and sometimes I think, Oh, maybe I shouldn't have that out there. It's kind of dirty or whatever, you know, but at the same time, the whole story is about how this is destroying him and the people that he's around. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I feel like the book is very honest that, you know, you, you live this way and this is what you get. Right. You know? Um, and so that's what I try to do as a writer. You know, I, I want to show things honestly, whether it's the bad things that people are doing or the good things. And that's, you know, one of the things I run into with publishers is that, you know, uh, one of the books uh, that, that is not available, I wrote a book called uh, Something with a Happy Ending. It is about a writer um, who is a Christian, but, you know, is not a perfect Christian and has had some you know, experience doing things he shouldn't have been doing. And, uh, and it's all in there, um, you know, and so <laughs> it's all in there, but it's, but it's all in there. You know, he's honest about his faith. He's honest about his failures. Um, you know, it, it sort of covers his life and relationships. It's just, uh, it, it is a, 
relationship story. It's about he and a, and a, a girl who's actually a Methodist pastor in the story, um, and she's sort of counseling him about issues. So he's telling her all these stories, um, and then in some ways about their own the relationship between the two of them. But you know, it, it's very raw on all levels. You know, the, the faith is very there but it's also very open and there's language and people say things that are inappropriate, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. And it's all there. And so, you know, I've had so many people in the industry read it and say, Oh, I can't do anything. I love this story. I think it's great, but it's, it's, it's too Christian. This is Christian stuff and I can't do Christian work. And I'm looking at them and tell them, you do realize that Christian market would never touch this with a 10 foot pole because of the stuff that he admits to and because of the stuff some of his friends say, you know, and so it's a very strange world. Um, but again, I refuse to back down from that. I'm not going to take the Christian stuff out of that book. Neither am I going to, you know, purge it of all of its, you know, honesty about bad behavior that, that people engage in right. trying to be honest about the world that we live in. And granted, you know, it's fiction. I'm, I'm making this up, but I'm trying to make it up in a very realistic way. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I just feel like you know, if, if God wanted me to lie about reality, he would have taught me to do that in his word. And, and that's exactly the opposite of what the word teaches me to do. It teaches me to be honest about the reality of our world. And so I feel like if, if I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, my writing is going to look like that. Right. Well said. Thanks for reading my mind and uh, formulating my thought and answering my question. <laughs> uh, um, so, so flipping the coin, um, you were talking about how the the protagonist always, you know, uh, comes up against hardships, and you want to write the the story about how, um, you know, he he is doing the right things and stuff, and and the you're trying to keep the end from the beginning. I would love to see a movie or read a story. Um, I, so this is more art for art's sake. I would love to create a trailer for a movie that um, is this just epic thing and it just draws all this attention and people go see this movie and it's like a 15 to 20 minute movie. You know, the the bad guy shows up in the bank and everybody's on the floor and the one, the 70 year old security guard wakes up and draws his pistol and shoots the bad guy. Movie's in and credits roll. Everybody's like, what? You know, but... <laughs> The trailer is all this yeah. other stuff, you know, and uh, so, and and I would love to see a you know like a book, uh, you know, I, I'd love to read a story about the most boring couple ever, like they're just kind of like watching life happen around them, and they're like, oh wow, that really that sucks for them, you know, and but it's everybody else, but and and they're somehow impervious to. Like nothing ever happens to them. Their kids are great. You know, <laughs> they're, they're just eating dinner, you know, taking the kids to school. Yeah. That's the most boring story ever, but just for art's sake, you know. <laughs> and so, But yeah. this, they kind of well, see all this you, other stuff. You can stuff. write that one. Right, right. You know, I, 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 like I said, it's for art's sake. It's not for... It's not for making money or anything yeah. like that. But yeah. it would just be well, funny. It's not all know? about money, but I mean, part of it, you know, the thing is I, I enjoy the process. And uh, that doesn't sound like an enjoyable process. To <laughs> of, me. Course not. of course not. Of course not. You know, where nothing happens at all. Uh, although there are books like that, uh, you know, people 
people do write books where almost nothing happens. Mm. Uh, and I wonder sometimes, how did you get this published? Nothing <laughs> happened. But I just don't. Anyhow, read, I don't read enough yeah. to find those books, so that's good. Mm. Yeah, I've run into them. I've had other people tell me about them, and I was thankful that they told me so right. I didn't have to read it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, who? What are your favorite reads? What What's that? Uh, you know, hey, you're going to be in quarantine for the next five years on a deserted island. You can only take a trilogy with you, or you can pick up one book, or you can, you know, what What do you enjoy going back to and reading? What or what do you think is are, are the best the best things to read out there? Oh, man, either currently or I mean, past or you know, Harry Potter, whatever you know. Wow. Um, in terms of things I read again and again, um, you know, obviously the Bible. And on the other end of the spectrum, um, I've read Douglas Adams' book sure. all many, many times. I say the other end of the spectrum because he's an atheist, but um, he, uh, he and, and no longer with us, sadly. But, uh, you know, he, if you don't know Douglas Adams, he wrote uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. I knew that's, I knew that's one that, you were, that you, were, you were going to say, so. Oh yeah, yeah. That's why I asked well, you this I, question. I mean, I read that the first time when I was twelve, I think, uh-huh. twelve or thirteen, twelve, definitely twelve, actually. Uh, Gordon Taylor. Uh, don't have, don't know what happened to Gordon Taylor. Haven't seen or heard from him in thirty years, probably. But in any case, he was sitting next to me in study hall, and he started laughing. And I said, "What? What are you laughing at?" And he was reading Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and so he showed me the page that he was laughing at, and then I checked that out of the library and became a massive Douglas Adams fan. Um, so there's, yeah, there are five books in that series, and they wrote two Dirk Gently books, who's a, a very bizarre private detective, um, that are also very funny. And so I read those again and again. Um, it's, it's been a while now, probably five or six years since I read them, but you know, I come back to them every so often um, because they make me laugh. And you know, they're they're not very well structured in terms of you know a novel story, how you build a story. Um, they're just fun and crazy. Right. And so you know, I'm that's what I want out of it. And so honestly, if I were stuck on the desert island, I would probably want that just to keep me from, you know, settling into any kind of despair, just, you know, <laughs> having stuff that makes me laugh. Um, so, you know, uh, on, on the one hand, definitely that, um, other things I would come back to, I realize it's cliche, but you know, I genuinely believe the Harry Potter books are written so well and I have read them all, uh, I've read them all at least three times. And wow. Some okay. of them more than that. Um, I used uh, I used one of them in a in a the first one in a class, so I've read it more than the others. But uh, I read all of them at least three times, and they're so well written. Uh, you know, just the story structure. You know, it's amazing. You read something in book six and go, "Holy crap! That that was set up in book two, and, and we hadn't thought about it since." But she clearly knew what she was doing. Wow. You know, um, I, I think J.K. Rowling is astonishingly talented writer. Um, you talk about books where nothing happens. Um, stuff happens in, uh, she wrote a book called The Casual Vacancy. I think it was the first thing she published after the Potter series was done. A lot of stuff happens in that book. I can't recommend anybody read it because it is, because it is just so painful. It's about a, a small community in England with uh, uh, a lot of the characters are living in a, a what, what amounts to a housing project. They call them council estates. Yeah. Um, and it's just so dark, but it is so powerfully done um, and mm. so perfectly written and so unlike Harry Potter. 
but then you get to the end of it, and it's like, oh, this is like the most painfully depressing thing I've ever read in my life. So I wouldn't tell anybody to read it. My point in mentioning it is just the talent level and the, and sure. the skill level that this woman has. I, I don't think there's, there's – don't know that there's a living writer who is more skilled wow. than J.K. Okay. Rowling. Um, and what a great know, story she might, has. Yeah, I mean, you might not like her stuff. You might not be interested in Harry Potter. You might not be interested in the detective novels that she writes now. Though she writes under the name Robert Galbraith, the detective novels. The first couple are really good. The others, maybe not as good. But my point is that, you know, I just, she clearly knows what she's doing. Mm. <laughs> no doubt. You know, she can write the, the wizards and, and whatnot. She can write detectives. She can write a very personal sort of, you know, quiet story about, you know, a small town. The, the woman can write. Um, can't take any of that away from her, whatever you might feel about Harry Potter, but I enjoy those books. I've read them, like I say, at least three times. Um, other things I come back to, gosh, trying to think, what do I come back to? If if I had my other bookshelf in here, I could tell you better. Um, but, oh, I've read, uh, Madeline Lingle's, um, A Wrinkle in Time and the other books that go with that many times over the years. I, I think uh, I think those are brilliant. She was brilliant. I've read her as a writer. One of the things I would recommend to anybody, uh, writer or artist, uh, is she wrote a book called Walking on Water, Reflections on Faith and Art, which uh, are, it's primarily just a sort of, it's not even a how-to book, but it's a, it's a, a book about what it's like to be a writer uh, and be a Christian. She she was a Christian. Um, she died maybe twelve years ago now. But uh, in any event, she you know she was a, a, a person of faith, and and you know, that was part of why she did what she did and how she did it, the way that she did it. Um, and so you know, anyway, I, I learned a lot from her just about you know discipline and and how you think about your life as a writer. And, and the, the book is not just about the writing itself, but about how writing fits in with being a mom and being a grandmother and, you know, being a person of faith and all the other things that are part of her very full life, I think. Um, so, you know, anyway, it's a great book. Um, and I've probably read that four or five times over the last 25 years. My aunt gave me that book when I was in college. So, um, would highly recommend that. Okay. Putting it in my cart to check out. Yeah. Um. Hmm. Long pause. What else you got, man? I threw my show notes away. <laughs> Say what? I, I threw my show notes away. Oh yeah, yeah. Earlier. You threw the show notes away. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so you're in Asheville, North Carolina. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what else I got. I don't know. I tell you, it's nice here. I uh, yesterday. I, I, give me one second. Yeah. So. While he's going to do whatever he's doing, y'all can so. support this podcast. I uh, my nose was about to drip. I didn't think the YouTube audience would want to see that. <laughs> um. We're pretty, so, we're pretty lax here. We're pretty lax. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I try to be sensitive to other people's needs. 
Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you two other things. I was going to say something about Asheville. Yesterday I was, I was working at, at one of my, my day jobs. I like to think of it that way because I prefer to think of myself as a writer and not a guy who does these other things. There you go. Um, but uh, in any event, um, I, I, I actually wrote a song yesterday while I was at work. I haven't, haven't written a song in many, many years um, other than for a play, um, but like an, an actual original song for the purpose of having a song. Right. Um, and so I was, I was doing that, but it's all about, you know, Asheville um, and, and being here. But uh, anyway, I love this place. It's beautiful. Um, I, I get to see all kinds of beautiful mountain views every day, just, just driving to work and back. And so, mm. Uh, there are a couple of spots where I, I, I've made it a discipline to, to say thank you to the Lord for letting me live here. Right. When I see these, these specific views yeah. as I'm passing through, I try to do that every single day, but because um, I think it's a blessing. The other thing I was going to say, um, talking about you know, what else I should probably tell you, um, I, I before the shutdown and all that came with it, I was trying to do stand-up comedy this past year, and that has been great fun. I was going to ask um, you about that because uh, there is a, a video on YouTube of you doing that. Yes, there there is one video. Unfortunately, um, I, I haven't had a chance to record any of the other sets. Um, one was filmed, but then the audio didn't work out, so um, hasn't uh, haven't been able to post any of that. But, okay. Uh, no, I, I probably have about an hour's worth of material at this stage that I've worked out. Um, and I do hope when, when we're allowed to get back on stage, I will be doing a, a one man show. You asked earlier, what else will we be doing? Right. Um, that, that is on my agenda. I want to, I want to do this, this one man show that's sort of mostly stand up comedy, but, but a little bit, uh, a little bit of a Ted talk almost just about the oh, fun. Christianity in America. Uh, the, you know, there's some issues I have with, with the church in America and that <laughs> come out in this, uh, uh, in, in part, things like what we were just discussing with the, you know, the, the issues of being a Christian writer, a Christian artist, and how so often we're expected to, you know, whitewash things. Right. And I just yeah. don't buy that at all. No. Uh, anyway, I wrote uh, I wrote this one man show, um, which I have called uh, Sociopath for Jesus, <laughs> uh, and uh, I hope to get a chance to perform that. Uh, Later this year, hopefully, we'll see how, how things go. Um, but, uh, if they record it, you have to post it. Or Oh, I will. I will. And actually, I've had conversations with a friend of mine who runs a uh, runs an internet channel, does a, a, has a, a TV channel um, that he wants to run the show. Oh, fun. Um, so yeah. So, yeah. He's of a similar idea from, from what you know we were just talking about with Christian art. You know, he's a guy and has what essentially is a Christian channel and they do some of the very basic kinds of things you'd think of on a Christian channel. There's a show where they just pray for people and stuff like that. But it's not just churchy stuff. He wants to just have entertainment that is from a Christian perspective, even though it might not be particularly evangelical or have any, you know, you know, so often we expect Christian entertainment to have somebody get saved or somebody have some profound emotional spiritual experience or whatever. And he's like, no, I, I, it's not really what we're trying to do. We'll have that now and again, but you know, Good. being able to put out entertainment from a Christian perspective that, you know, is just sort of normal stuff. And, you know, is not the big moment of anybody's spiritual life, but maybe <laughs> some other event that's occurring in, in those stories. So yeah. anyway, he's talked about wanting to, to put this on there. Uh, so hopefully, hopefully I'll get to do it. Hopefully we'll be able to have crowds in the room right. and, and, and not have to worry about that. 
Um, and I'll be able to perform that. And yeah, eventually that will be available to, to watch. That would be cool. I got nothing else. I mean, other than just catching up with you offline. I think this, yeah, been, yeah. I think this has been fantastic for our audience and for those who are listening, just uh, wanting to get into to writing or playwriting. Thank you for your insight and wisdom. Um, especially those, those people of faith who might be thinking, Oh, I've got to, I've got to whitewash this, or I've got to make this a, you know, my grandma's going to be reading this. Your grandma, she lived, she lived a life. She knows what it's like. So it's okay. <laughs> yeah. My, my mother is uh, exactly the kind of person that they might think that of and be right. worried about. And yet she's my, my editor, you know, she's the, the last person who makes sure all the, the periods and commas are where they belong. And so, you know, they can handle it. It's okay. Yeah, exactly. Dude, thank you so much. It is thank you. So, I'm glad to do it. It's been so, fun. so good to, to see your face. Don't hang up. Don't, don't end this zoom meeting. I won't. Um, I won't. <laughs> so uh, one last time, Chris Allen, Israel Allen, and Terry Pryor. Terry Pryor. All Named of- after my mother. Uh, that was her name when she was young. Her, her name is Teresa, but everybody called her Terry when she was young. Ah. And so I cho- that was her maiden name, Pryor. So uh, I chose that name to honor my mother. So, yeah. So Chris Allen, Israel Allen, and Terry Pryor, T-E-R-R-Y, Terry Pryor, gotcha. are, are my the names I write under. Your your ghostwriting names, um, or your your real name, um, pen name, pen name. name. That's it. That's it. Name. That's it. Right. Pen names. Yeah. That's that's the term you want. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just and again, it's just a branding thing. It's just so people know what they're getting. Sure. You know, if, if sure. you if you pick up an Israel Allen book, there's probably going to be some some violence and a mystery. <laughs> if you pick up a Terry Pryor book, there'll be some relationship stuff, that kind of thing. And if it has my real name on it, it'll be obviously Christian. Yeah. So. That's awesome all available on Amazon or anywhere you want to get your favorite. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Books. Uh, all of those books are, yeah, I guess five of them that are available on Amazon and then the play is available through pioneer. Right. That's handled differently. You don't just go and buy a play. That right. And I'll link all that in the show notes, uh, in the bottom of this episode and even on YouTube when we post this. Um, great. Thank you. Yeah, dude, thank you for coming on and talking about this and it's fun Thanks to catch up. Me. Yeah. Ooh, I'm going to end this so we can just chat, chat offline. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening today. Uh, this has been the Creative Liberty Podcast, and I have had a fantastic time with Mr. Chris Allen talking about writing and being an author. And you did it, you crazy person. You, you did it. <laughs> anyway. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Um, and if you would like to be a sponsor for this show, I'm going to be posting some stuff about that. If you'd like to donate and help support, if you like what you hear, keep, uh, keep that support up. We thank you. And until the next episode, I'll see y'all later.